It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 352 for July 21st, 2013. This week, with the potential for minute-by-minute changes, Adobe Creative Cloud poses a challenge for reviewers. If you want to be able to receive an email message from someone without giving them your email address, I'll explain how to do it. In short circuits, Microsoft drops prices on its most basic tablets, the Surface RT. Japan's SoftBank acquires Sprint Nextel and prices drop. More on the way. And universities are dealing with increasing numbers of electronic break-ins. Adobe's decision to convert most of its applications, everything but Lightroom in fact, from the traditional perpetual licensing model to a rental or lease model is one of the most disruptive changes I've seen in 30 plus years I've spent using desktop computers. That's not to say it's bad, but it's also not to say it's good. It is, as some like to say, what it is. And we're going to see more of it. Microsoft has already converted the Office suite to a quasi-cloud offering, but hasn't yet quite had the Balmers to go all the way. Sorry. Adobe has been in the lead when it comes to dropping support for older 32-bit hardware for some applications. I didn't hear a lot of pushback from professionals when it came to hardware requirements, though. That may be because most professionals understand that more efficient software that runs on faster hardware makes them more efficient. Even the pros are having some problems accepting the concept of software rental, though. I prefer to own my software is a comment I've heard so many times that it no longer surprises me, but it's something that should be addressed. Even if you buy a box that contains software on a disk, you don't own the software. Really. Read the license that comes with the software. What the license bestows is your right to use the software in the manner described by the license. The software publisher still owns the software. So in that regard, the new arrangement really isn't much of a change. What does change is the term of the license. It's no longer perpetual, but instead it has a clear termination date. Now I've explained on previous programs how the cost structure actually saves money for those who previously purchased every upgrade, and may actually save money for those who previously purchased alternate upgrades. Now those who bought only every third upgrade, or waited even longer, will end up paying more. But they're also going to get more. Some people may adamantly refuse to accept the leasing business model, and they will either have to continue to use CS6 or whatever version they currently have, or they'll have to migrate to competing products. In some cases, though, few, if any, competing products exist. So this new arrangement is kind of a challenge for reviewers. In the past, a new version of an application would arrive and reviewers such as me would check out the new features and write about them. Under Creative Cloud, the situation is considerably more fluid because Adobe can introduce new features and process improvements at any time. That, in fact, might be what Adobe is counting on to convince those who are holding back to accept this new system. But the problem for reviewers is that improvements are no longer linked explicitly to a program version. 
Having worked with Creative Cloud for a little while now, I'm evolving what I believe will be the process of letting you know what you'll find in the applications. Per-product summaries no longer make any sense, and Creative Cloud is far too large a concept with entirely too many component pieces to be reviewed in a single report, even if that report lasted all day. So, I'm planning to talk about individual additions to the specific components as I discover them and evaluate them. And with that in mind, let's start with the good news about installation. I wasn't in the office when I installed Creative Cloud. Now, this wasn't so much a magic trick as simply an effort to save time. The installation, I thought, would take a considerable amount of time because all of the applications would need to be downloaded from Adobe, and I knew I could check in several times during the day to check on the process. To test, I selected a single CC application, Photoshop 64-bit, and was surprised to see how quickly it downloaded and installed. Now, granted, I do have an acceptably fast broadband connection, at least by U.S. standards, but even so, the installation was complete far sooner than I expected. Based on what I'd seen during the installation, I believed that the existing CS6 version of Photoshop would still be installed and fully functional. It was, and that's the good news. Anybody who tries Creative Cloud and decides not to continue with it can, with relative ease, return to the previously installed perpetual license. So next, I selected most of the Creative Cloud applications for installation and logged off. When I logged on again about two hours later to check the installation process, it was nearly complete, and a quick review of the start screen confirmed that both the old and new versions were present. Although I said one can return to the previous version with relative ease, there is this one caveat. When you open an existing file with some of the CC applications, the file format will be modified so that it will no longer open in the previous version of the application. The workaround, if you decide to return to the older application, is to use Save As in the Creative Cloud version to save a file that the older application can still read. It's likely that the backwards conversion from current CC version to CS6 will work without much trouble, but I'd be kind of nervous about depending on that as a long-term solution. But the overall good news here is that anyone who wants to try Creative Cloud can use it without restriction for 30 days. Your only commitment will be the time involved in downloading and installing the various components and, of course, testing them. How about installing a one-time dead drop? Or is it a cutout? If you watch spy movies or read spy novels, you're familiar with dead drops and cutouts. If not, I'll explain what they are. Even if you're not a spy, you could have a good reason for wanting to employ these bits of spycraft. And I'll also explain how you can do that. So let's start with a couple of descriptions, compliments of Wikipedia. A dead drop is a method of espionage tradecraft used to pass items between two individuals using a secret location and thus it does not require them to meet directly. Using a dead drop permits a case officer and an agent to exchange objects and information while maintaining operational security. Compare that to a live drop, which requires two people to meet when exchanging items or information. And then there's the cutout. In espionage parlance, cutout is a mutually trusted intermediary method 
or channel of communication that facilitates the exchange of information between agents. Cutouts usually know only the source and destination of the information to be transmitted, but are unaware of identities of any other persons involved in the espionage process. Thus, a captured cutout cannot be used to identify members of an espionage cell. Based on that description, I think what I'm about to describe is more like a cutout than a dead drop. Although I've never worked for an intelligence agency, I know the FBI does have a file on me, I don't know about the CIA or the NSA, but that's probably not germane to this account anyway. And for what it's worth, I know that the FBI has a file on me, because in the 1970s I filed a request under the Freedom of Information Act requesting a copy of my FBI file. Several months later, it arrived, heavily redacted, and with the conclusion that I was not a threat to national security. I'm not sure whether I should be offended by that or not. So why would any honest non-spy want a cutout? The most obvious reason I can think of is this. A website demands you provide a functioning email address before you can use the site. At this point, you don't know much about the people who operate the website. Will they spam you? Are they ethical? You don't know any of these things. So maybe you'd like to have a casual relationship before you commit to something more formal? If so, you need Maildrop CC. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Let's say that website you visited is called TechBiter.com, and you're not sure that the guy who runs it is really trustworthy. After all, he's already told you he has an FBI file. So before you trust this guy with your email address, you want to confirm that he's not a nattering nabob of negativism. And thanks to Spiro Agnew for that term. Instead of your email address, you offer an address that contains elements known only to you and something that identifies the website. Say, for example, fuzzy.kittens.techbiter.test at maildrop.cc. Give the TechBiter guy that address, and he can send messages to you. You can pick them up without ever divulging your email address. Oh, wait a minute, though. Don't you have to sign up with maildrop.cc and give them your real address? The answer is no. And that is both the beauty and the danger of MailDrop. You can use any email address you want. It just has to end with MailDrop.cc. You don't have to open an account with MailDrop. You don't have a password. Ah, so anyone who knows the address can see any messages that are sent to it. So choose the address you use carefully. The MailDrop website explains it this way. MailDrop has no sign-ins. MailDrop has no passwords. MailDrop is designed for no security. MailDrop is designed for little or no privacy. MailDrop offers the ability to give out a quick email address to any site or app. Then, after you've established more trust with that site, you can give them your real email address. The website continues. MailDrop helps stop your inbox from being flooded with spam from that one time you registered on a site that got hacked. MailDrop can be used to get your receipt for an e-commerce purchase without signing up to be spammed on a regular basis with the latest offers. My Fuzzy Kittens address is alias to a really long and ugly address, and if I use that to check my email, then I have to know the original address to see what's in the mailbox. MailDrop's website puts it this way. Use an alias address when you need a little bit more security. 
You can't use a mail drop box for illegal activities, and there are other restrictions. Plain text and HTML messages only are allowed, but they have to be less than 100K in length. All attachments in messages are removed and discarded, so nobody can send you a file that way. Inboxes are limited to a maximum of 10 messages, and any inbox that doesn't receive a message within 24 hours will be cleared. Oh, and consider that 24-hour rule a maximum? because any particular inbox that has not recently received a message might be cleared just to make room for messages that have been sent to more active inboxes. In short circuits, perhaps taking a play from Apple's playbook, Microsoft has dropped the price of its Surface RT tablet by $150. This is the process that Apple fans have come to know and hate. Early adopters pay full price, those who wait usually pay quite a bit less for more features. In this case, the features are the same, but the price is now $450 instead of $600 for the RT version. That's the one that won't run full Windows applications, but it does come with 32 gigabytes of memory, a 10.1-inch screen, and a touch-sensitive keyboard that also acts as a screen cover. If you omit the keyboard, the price is just $350. IDC, one of the two big research firms that works with the high-tech industry, says Microsoft has shipped about 1 million tablets during the first quarter, of which about a quarter were the RT version systems. Now that sounds like a lot until you realize that overall tablet sales worldwide are set at about 50 million units. Apple has nearly 40% of the market, and Microsoft shares the Windows market with Acer, Amazon, Asus, and Samsung. The Surface tablets have generally received positive reviews, but they've not yet gained much of a hold on the marketplace. Microsoft, despite its plans to become more of a devices and services company, is not a well-known name in hardware, except for keyboards, mice, and of course the Xbox gaming console. The Federal Communications Commission recently approved the acquisition of Sprint Nextel, the number three U.S. cellular telephone provider by Japan's SoftBank. The vote by FCC commissioners was unanimous. In addition, Sprint will acquire the remaining portion of Clearwire that it doesn't currently own. The proposal had been approved previously by the Federal Trade Commission and by Sprint's stockholders. Sprint immediately lowered prices, but not by as much as many expected. T-Mobile, the fourth largest carrier, offers a $70 package for unlimited talk, text, and data. Industry leader Verizon's unlimited plan costs $90 a month. AT&T in second place has an $85 limited plan. Sprint's price had been the highest of the major carriers, $110 a month. But the new price, which apparently was already in the planning stages before the acquisition, dropped the monthly fee to $80. Big drop, but not quite enough. 
SoftBank's CEO has promised more aggressive pricing while also working to upgrade the network. The company's pricing plans in Japan have been credited with forcing an overall decline in the cost of cellular service as competitors were forced to match SoftBank's rates. But for Sprint to be competitive in the U.S., the company really needs to upgrade its network. SoftBank plans to spend $16 billion on that project over the next two years, primarily improving base stations. The price, $21.6 billion for 78% of Sprint Nextel. It is the largest purchase outside of Japan ever made by a Japanese company. The money will allow Sprint to upgrade its network so that it'll be more competitive with AT&T and Verizon. And Clearwire owns a large chunk of spectrum that Sprint will be able to leverage in competing against those larger services. The FCC review determined that the two deals would be likely to improve mobile broadband access and cellular telephone service, and that potentially it could result in lower prices for rural, low-income, and minority consumers. one time, colleges and universities operated with lax security measures, but that's been changing in recent years as higher education computer systems increasingly come under attack. The attacks are staged not to damage the systems, but to extract information. An article by Richard Perez-Pena in the New York Times reveals the challenges faced by university computer system operators. America's research universities, among the most open and robust centers of information exchange in the world, Perez-Pena writes, are increasingly coming under cyber attack, most of it thought to be from China, with millions of hacking attempts weekly. Campuses are being forced to tighten security, constrict their culture of openness, and try to determine what has been stolen. The article says the University of Wisconsin has dealt with up to 100,000 hacking attempts from China. Now, that's 100,000 attempts per day. In addition, there are attacks from Russia, Vietnam, Eastern Europe, and probably from some of the students right there on campus. Some of the attempts have undoubtedly been successful. Others probably have not even been detected. And often the problem, when it's discovered, isn't discovered until long after the event happened, meaning that the university researchers have virtually no chance of identifying what information, if any, was actually stolen. Perez-Pena's article notes that the university computer systems are a virtual gold mine for anybody who's seeking information on, for example, pharmaceutical research, computer development, or energy devices. It quotes Cornell Director of Information Technology Policy Tracy Matrano, who said that detection is difficult because hackers' ability to detect vulnerabilities and penetrate them without being detected has increased sharply. Educational institutions function best when information can be freely shared, but universities are now having to build increasingly sophisticated protective systems. Perez-Pena says university IT officials are resisting the temptation, though, to create a fortress with high digital walls. If you're interested in the full article, and it is a very good article, take a look at the New York Times website. You'll find a link to the article on the TechBiter Worldwide website. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.